Hey everyone, welcome to Bomb in the AM with Scoops and the Wolf. Uh, as the case is on most Mondays uh, in the last couple of months, uh, this time on Monday we are joined by a guest, uh, and this week we have plucked another one from across the seas, uh, Mike Bithell, the creator of Thomas Was Alone and the upcoming uh, volume. So uh, thanks for joining us, Mike. Thank you for having me. That's a lovely intro. Thank you. I try, to make, them, I try to make them lovely, you know? It's good. I mean, the standard, the bar, I mean, I've been informed, obviously, by everyone else in the Indie Illuminati about, you know, the, the kind of ship you guys run. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, yeah this, we is, only... this is how we roll around here. Yeah, 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 yeah. We only clean it up on Mondays. Just don't watch the Friday show, and, you know, mm -hmm. you'll have this pristine understanding of how we treat our guests and uh, just how we conduct our lives in general. It kind of slides off as this week goes on, does it, kind of inevitably? <laughs> yeah, I think that... I think it's called like a slow descent into alcoholism, uh, getting getting towards the weekend. I think that's like that's how I like to describe Giant Bomb in a nutshell. When we <laughs> when we pitch it to investors, please invest in this site full of sad people that are just trying to barely get it to the weekend. And right. that's why we're back at CPS. <laughs> yeah, uh. That's why someone bought our company. Gonna <laughs> 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 get these people off the streets. Ugh. Alex, how was uh, how was your weekend? It was just fine. Uh, obviously, I sat around and watched the Super Bowl, as many people did last night, and uh, that was kind of a train wreck. I had pretty much checked out of that game entirely by around the third quarter. Uh, which... And my guess is Seahawks fans were blacked out uh, by the third quarter and don't remember the rest anyway. Yeah, I mean, most I, I mentioned it last night. Most of the Seahawks fans I've known over the years are some of the most beleaguered, downtrodden people uh, in all of football. Just, just knowing that they could get so close to success over and over again and then constantly find ways to fuck it up uh, over the years. The, nobody ever believed that the Seahawks would, would finally take it, but I think this year was their year, and it was fun to watch them kind of beat the shit out of Peyton, Peyton Manning because, I don't know, I always get a little bit of a morbid thrill out of that whenever that happens. Hey, he... I don't forget, he beat my Chicago Bears uh, mm -hmm. in 2006 as part of the Indianapolis Colts. And uh, sure, he may have beaten Rex Grossman, uh, which I, I don't think is much of a feat. And I think may say more about Peyton Manning's enduring Super Bowl legacy than anything else. Uh, but I was rooting for that man to fall. And uh, I unfortunately got way more than I bargained for because then I started to feel really bad about it about halfway through the game. Yeah, see, I never quite hit that moment of empathy. I don't know. I think I'm just, <laughs> I got so many years of watching him uh, battle the Patriots has just hardened me against any of his hardships. Like, I kind of enjoy his misery on some terrible level. But, yeah, you know, I mean, other than that, like, it was a pretty low-key weekend. You know, went over to a friend's house, made, like, uh, watched a bunch of Luther, because I had never watched that show before. I heard uh, it is. It's it's a good you know good cop show if you're into that kind of thing. Uh, it, it I I have a hard time believing a sort of misbegotten, non charming Idris Elba. Like I, I think that's a bit of a stretch for my imagination. <laughs> uh, but he makes it work, and I'll, I'll give him that. He's he's a fine actor, and he makes that work. But you know, I didn't play end up playing a whole lot of games. I, I picked up Dead Rising three again. Tried to amble my way through a little bit more of that. Uh, finally, did finish Broken Age, uh, which. Yeah. Okay. You were right about that ending. That does. Yes, yeah, that was a great ending. A great, you know, as far as cliffhangers go, that's about. It, it feels like it was planned that way all along. Yeah, that was that. That is an example of a cliffhanger done extraordinarily well, uh, and that does not happen very often. So kudos to Double Fine for pulling that one off. I am now actually legitimately pretty excited about the second half of that game. Whereas before, I was like, "This is cool. I'll probably play the second half." Now I'm like, "Now I will definitely play the second half." You, you have got me interested. 
Uh, Mike, is the is the Super Bowl a thing in the UK at all? Like, I don't. Do you have any, like Do you have friends that throw Super Bowl parties? Like, is there any any bit of that outside of the US, or is that is that a very American centric thing? Um. Well, it's the world. Is it the world? The World Series? No, that's baseball, isn't it? That's baseball. <laughs> that's, that's, baseball. that's baseball. You're close. No, it's, it's, our TV over here is really trying at the moment because I think one of the big channels got the rights to it, so they've been trying to convince us that it's not just rugby with excessive padding. Um, but, yeah, no, not really. To be honest, most of my knowledge of Super Bowl is Twitter becomes unusable for a couple of hours. That's, that's, <laughs> just, that's just, the full just extent of my awareness. Hour. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not a big sports guy anyway, but no, I don't, I don't, I don't know that at all. Yeah, I, I, it was really weird. A friend of mine who, uh, let's say, did not get their football watching in the most legal of senses. Mm. Uh, the way they would watch it was through some streaming service on the internet, and the the one they watched that had the highest quality was like a UK broadcast, and just they would have. Uh, you know, two UK anchors, uh, you know, that, you know, actually, you know, knew what they were talking about. And then, like, the most, like, eighth string, like, football player, like, from some team that you would never heard of, you'd never heard of the player, but they could say, we have an NFL player, we have locked one up, yeah. and here to well, explain so it to the UK. It's very alien to us. Like, we know, we know, we know, like, Super Bowl, I guess, from the UK perspective, especially as a UK nerd, it's that thing that there was an episode of Friends about. <laughs> and it's when mm -hmm. trailers come out. Like, that's yeah. basically all we know it for over here. Um, but it's it's okay, and there were some good trailers. So And that weird Morpheus advert, which was strange. <laughs> that's true, that's true. I guess, yeah, I guess for the worldwide audience, it's just more about uh, the ridiculous amount of money they get spent trying to push car commercials uh, for a couple-hour span. Um I managed to, uh, Alex, get through... Mm -hmm. uh, I'm at the very end of Banner Saga. Okay. I've made it to the final, uh, the final battle. I was bashing my head against the boss, um, mm -hmm. like five or six times last night before I just decided to say, "F it, I'm gonna give this another go." Did you figure uh, out the strategy yet? I think so. I don't okay. want to say it out loud. I'll run it by you after okay. the show. But essentially, you know, the Banner Saga has. Uh, for the vast majority of its time, like you can kind of just keep employing the same strategies over and over again. And then at the, the last second, they introduce uh, a boss character, and it's the only kind of boss that you face in the game, really, uh, that completely changes uh, how you're supposed to approach the battle, I would say, almost entirely. Yep. Um, so it makes a lot of your strategies counterintuitive. I appreciate that the game is forcing me to rethink my strategy, but I think it is poor design to have that just appear out of nowhere at the end when you sort of have completely hardened how you would approach uh, a battle and then the game's like, ah, none of that stuff works. Uh, so, you know, everything from the way you have uh, invested points into your guys to the way uh, which characters you're picking to the items you have purchased, like, yeah, I'm sure it's all very doable and I think I have a strategy that will work regardless of what I have used up to this point, but it's a little frustrating that the game keeps you pretty constrained in terms of how you can customize your stuff because you're so resource constrained throughout the uh, entirety of the game. And then suddenly it's like, hey, maybe do this thing or try yeah. this thing. And it's like, oh, well, that's not that great. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's emblematic of, of the problem I had, the one major problem I had with that game, which is that it felt like a really good opening third of a one long game as opposed to, uh, you know, an entire game in its own little self. You know, it, like the, that, that ending is a ridiculous cliffhanger, which I've mentioned multiple times, and the fact that there is only one boss fight in the game with no real build-up to how the, you know, the battle strategies change up to that point is a real bummer because... Yeah, like all of a sudden it's like, oh hey, the difficulty just you know jumped off a cliff all of a sudden, and you're like, uh, but this all this time I've just been beating stupid little rock demons and like bandits who I can kill in like five minutes. This makes no sense. Yeah, I mean, uh, like I have my my general strategy uh, has been to you know, I got tanks in front, arrows in the back, and then I got a <laughs> magic guy that does some real crazy damage. When he does some enemies, helpful stuff. Well, if you can get a cluster of them, and you know yep. they're in a diagonal pattern, like you can take out. You can get like five health off of four or five guys if you if you set it up correctly. That shield um, recharge of his is pretty handy too. If you that's if really handy. That. Uh, but what's not handy is when the boss can do fifteen health uh, yes. swings when that is, I think for most characters the most amount of health they can have. So your tanks aren't really doing much tanking uh, no. when uh, they can only take off you know two shield points and then get hit for fifteen health. So. I think I have a strategy that I'll uh, I'll have to employ, but you know yeah. the one thing I will say about that game is that the world building it does is truly incredible. Like mm-hmm. it really does feel like you inhabit a place, and when big moments do happen, uh, it you feel as awe inspired as the characters do. Um, for a place that is full of gods and giants and magic and things of that nature, it really does feel uh, like a tangible place in a way that. You know, most games feel like I just inhabit a world that just right. you know, happened to be created. Like, yeah, here's this fantasy world. Here's, or, uh, they just feel like uh, sort of environmental dressing for a bunch yeah. of game mechanics. Uh, whereas the Banner Saga feels very much like the world came first. Mm-hmm. And that the mechanics, the game you're playing just happens to play, take place in this world. As opposed to the other way around. And, uh, like, it makes me want to just sit and, you know... Spend another hour in the map um, and click on every little section to read just a little bit more uh, about the lore, uh, because I actually do find uh, the world to be uh, particularly fascinating. Yeah, I, I've you know complained in the past that sometimes games get a little too willing, I think, to throw a ton of their backstory into you know discoverables like weird you know uh, background things and the 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 pause menu you know just like you know here are all these little documents you have to sit and read in the middle of this game that you know you're kind of trying to feverishly pace your way through but that game does a really good job of kind of embedding that stuff into the you know the conversations you have with people if the 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 you know the narration and the, the spots where those pop up and then obviously when you're just kind of clicking around that world map like there's a lot of really good detail put into that stuff uh, that so much so that I actually kind of wanted to use, you know, the map and actually read through that stuff as opposed to most games where I'm kind of like, eh, yeah, but I could just go kill some guys instead of just sitting here reading things. So I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so that's that that is that is definitely one of the things that game does the best, I think, of of all the various things it tries to do. Uh, Mike, are you playing anything right now, or are you just completely like every time you're working <laughs> on a game, it's it's to the detriment of knowing what else is out there for two to three years. It's basically the latter. No, okay. I, I'm, I'm playing a bit. I, I've got. I've still got to play Broken Age. I got that because I'm a backer, so I got that. I've got Banner Saga to play. I've got a bunch of stuff. 
I'm trying to think what the last thing I played was. It might well have been Assassin's Creed 4, which mm. is really bad and old. Oh no, I played on. I played the new Batman the other day. It's the first Batman game I've enjoyed in a while because I've not been a big fan. I really didn't like Arkham City, so it's, I I like that. That was good. Really. That is, a, that, is a, that is a contrarian position. Do you care to yes. elaborate on, on why mm-hmm. Arkham City didn't really resonate? Um, for me, it was it was too big, and it felt okay. uh, like I loved I loved um, Arkham Asylum was fantastic. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I look back now at Arkham Asylum, and I'm wondering how much of my enjoyment of it was just surprise, like just mm-hmm. oh my god, a, a good Batman game. Because you know, I lo- I love the comics, and I kind of. I think I was hungry for a good Batman game. But the, the Metroid model kind of seemed to work really well, and it was a really nice way of dealing with Batman as a kind of a gadget user, because that's obviously where all of his abilities are, to kind of kind of balance that out through a kind of a Metroidvania kind of setup. But then, yeah, the open world, it just felt, <clears throat> it felt like it didn't really change much from that. They just spread out the gameplay. Um, I, f- I spent way too much time just flying, and I didn't, I didn't enjoy playing as Batman flying through the air enough to enjoy those joining up bits. Um, the, the, the traveling around in open worlds is so crucial to my enjoyment of them. Like GTA, it's fun because you drive around and if you're like me, you keep forgetting to drive on the right-hand side and crash into everything. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of a good ongoing thing. And then um, like the Assassin's Creed games, I just love the parkour system. Like when it works, the flow and the feeling and movement, it's just fun to travel from A to B. And yeah, Arkham City never really worked for me on that. And I didn't mm. like some of the way um, some of the enemies were kind of written and they didn't feel right to me. But I think that's more because I was, I'm more into the kind of the comic stuff than the animated show, which I got the impression it kind of took a lot of tonal stuff from that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but then Origins I really liked because I think it was just, it felt simplified. It felt pulled back to the kind of the, the stuff I enjoyed, uh, much tighter environments and stuff, which can kind of, I don't know, worked for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm with you there. I, you know, I don't think it's necessarily the case that, you know, sort of the the general formula that that Rocksteady has come up with couldn't work in in an open world, but that uh, cities open world one I had a problem with it because it felt just so incredibly contrived. Like mm-hmm. they, you know, they just they weren't willing to commit to a true open world, which I understand. You know, the resources to build something like that to make it feel livable. There's a reason why there are only a couple of developers in the world capable of doing that, and they spend five-plus years with each of those games to make sure they pull it off. Um, and they have decades that they're building upon uh, to make it work. Um, and, and so in City, it felt like they tried to sort of, you know, g- have the best of both worlds. Hey, we're going to have an open world, but we're going to contrive it in a way that it really doesn't feel as open as you would want when you know that Gotham City is just beyond, the you know, yeah. the yeah, wall. like. The it was. It wasn't the main event. It's like if I'm buying a Batman game, I want Gotham City, and I want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's. It's. It goes back to what you were saying about Banner Saga. It's that kind of world building stuff. I just didn't believe Arkham City. It didn't. It didn't feel like GTA. People go on about GTA being an amazing simulation of a city. It's not. It's abs- absolute rubbish. It's faking everything. Um, but it's faking it so well. Right. That you feel that it's much cleverer as a simulation than it is, and you believe it, and you start to know landmarks, and you know I can drive around GTA 4 and find my bearings as I would in a real city. That's incredible, and that's we underestimate the skill that goes into producing that kind of rich world. Whereas, yeah, Arkham Arkham City just for me it just felt like it felt like they had a load of really cool locations that they wanted to do, and then they kind of stitched them together 
in kind of the, the Mario World level map, basically, and just had me flying around that level map. And it didn't, it didn't feel real to me. It didn't feel cohesive. Similar problem to, um, which one was it, Mafia? Which was the most recent Mafia one? Where Two. it was, again, yeah, where it felt like, where it was, where it was beautiful, um, but it didn't feel like a real place I was in. It felt like. Sure. Um, it, it just didn't co have that cohesive feeling that you get in really great open world games. And weirdly, yeah, Arkham Origins for me did do that, and I need mm. to go back and work out why. I think it was the Gotham thing. I think it was it felt more cohesive. The Christmas thing, even though it's a really gimmicky way of explaining why no one's on the streets, <laughs> it tie everything together and gave it this kind of a kind of classic tie tied it all together really nicely. I thought. As a man who grew up on Shane Black films, I am very I much okay with the Black, idea right, of yeah. Christmas as a place of violence and a time of violence. So, you know, I think that's fine. I think I, I agree with you on, on, on the city bit just because I thought Asylum worked so well because of the sense of claustrophobia that environment and that world kind of built around Batman. I like City a lot, but I agree that the open world thing was definitely not what I wanted necessarily from a next Batman game. It's like, you know, a fleshing out of the world a little bit is fine, but, like, just being able to kind of run around and do anything wasn't necessarily what I was asking for from Batman. I still maintain the game, and this is one It's on one of the games I'd love to make at some point if I ever have the, the resources to do it, is yeah. a really, like, an open-world building. It's mm -hmm. something, like, you never see them really kind of put that depth into a contained space. And actually, just going well. I'm going to make it like you know, like Die Hard. Basically, I'm going to make Nakatomi Plaza. <laughs> I'm going to put some bad guys in it, and I'm going to let the player work out what happens next. That's that really appeals to me as something to do at some point. But I want to play a Mike Bithell Die Hard game. I'm just saying it right now. <laughs> I let. I want to make it. I might. I might do a Kickstarter one day. Okay. <laughs> Mike Bithell presents Die Hard in quotes because yeah. I don't have the. I don't have the rights. It's all going to be cubes running around. Um, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, this seems, yeah, this seems to be kind of... a bloody tank top. This is it, yeah, yeah. Oh, it designed itself, man. Can you it's imagine? The, the gritty reboot right. of Thomas Was Alone. Thomas is no longer alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's, got, yeah. he's got these guns. Thomas, ho, 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 yeah. <laughs> Get Reginald Bell Johnson to narrate. Oh, that'll be great. Dumb. So uh, for folks who are, you know, aren't aware, I think most people, uh, you know, what Thomas uh, Was Alone is, you know, it's been on pretty much every platform under the sun at this point. But, you know, you're, you're knee-deep into... Um, volume. So can you kind of give sort of the elevator pitch on, on what volume is for folks who maybe haven't heard of too much about it? Um, yeah, so volume is, it's a stealth game, um, but it's kind of um, kind of a backward step. It's, it's the kind of stealth game I love, which is um, very arcadey, puzzly, um, predictable, um, but in terms of what the AIs are doing and in terms of how the world works. Stealth game. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of awesome stealth games, but most of them, the, the the fashion has been to move away from kind of predictability and understanding of the environment into more of a kind of either a horror context or just a lack of awareness context, where you don't really know what's going on or where people are or what the scenario is. It feels it's being played for its lack of power, and I wanted to make kind of where the old stealth games, kind of things like Thief and Metal Gear Solid where it was a power fantasy. It just so happened that your power was being really clever rather than you know being very strong, um, which doesn't feel like something that many stealth games do anymore. So I kind of wanted to go back and do the kind of stealth game I know I would have loved as like a 14, 15-year-old, um, and then to, on top of that, do some, some new story stuff, which is a bit of a jump up from Thomas Was Alone. It, it seems like, yeah, like a lot of modern stealth games are 
stacking systems on top of systems on top of systems on top of systems, whether it's, you know, uh, sort of systems that the player uh, is interacting or driving or AI systems that are colliding so that you're unable to... It, it's constantly testing the player to react to the unpredictability and, and maintain their stealth or, or maintain their mission objective as opposed to, you know, uh, previous stealth games due to largely technological restraints uh, had very limited... AI and uh, unpredictability, and so it really was more of a puzzle game than a you know, sort of an action game yeah. in which you are trying to be stealthy uh, because that's all they could kind of pull off for the time. Whereas what you're doing now is, you know, obviously, you know, it's it's you making the game, so you're you're limited by resources, but you're also making a design choice to uh, have predictability be a part of of the game. Yeah, and I mean, it's not, it's not, it's been painted, I've, I've seen some articles about it where it's been painted as this, this massive critique of modern stealth games. I love, I love stealth games. Um, I love, I mean, Hitman Blood Money is the greatest video game ever made. Done. It's a terrific uh, game. Full stop, that's the end of the conversation. Like, I, <laughs> I, 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 I love, I love stealth games as they are. Um, but it's just, it, the genre went in a direction that was different. I think it does go back, actually, to Thief and Metal Gear Solid. I think I'm right in saying they came out in the same year, and it feels like Metal Gear, or around the same time, I think. Like yeah, same era, certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it was like Metal Gear Solid was one path, which was the kind of, the, they're very arcade um, very much the you know the massive pulled out camera view, the kind of the awareness, almost more almost like a strategy puzzle game rather than a an action game. And then Thief was the opposite side, which was hiding in the shadows, very constrained view, all of this kind of stuff. And it just feels like, thanks to you know, I guess Splinter Cell and Hitman, we went down the Thief road and we didn't go down the Metal Gear road. So this is mm -hmm. almost the what if we gone the other way. Um, so it's, 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 hopefully it stands out a little bit. Unfortunately for me, a lot of indies seem to have the same kind of love of this genre, so there's obviously quite a few <laughs> of the games with the vision cone kind of stuff going on. Yeah, I mean, Mark, yeah, Mark of the Ninja was one of my favorite games oh, uh, from that game. year. It's a, it's, it, it really kind of crystallized, uh, you know, I, I think I have said probably far too generally in the past that I, I dislike stealth games, and, and, and the part, a lot of where that feeling came from um, was not having enough information as the player in a 3D space as more stealth games were going 3D, uh, where I just felt like often I just didn't have enough information uh, to actually uh, enact anything that I wanted to do. And, you know, what Mark the Ninja did was put into stark contrast, you know, just how difficult that is to pull off in 3D and just... Now, Mark the Ninja does it very, very well. It's not to say it's easy to do in 2D, but... That when you ha when you do flatten the plane and the player is only going left to right, you're able to communicate visually what the enemies know, what the player is capable of doing, in a way that just becomes infinitely more complicated when you're talking about a 3D space. It's really telling when you look at like stealth. Um, one of the big mechanics that you've seen introduced to stealth games in the last couple of years are specifically things to improve your sense of spatial awareness. So things like well, usually seeing through walls. So um, Oh, um, Last of Us, I guess, had the most recent one where you can mm -hmm. kind of do a slight crouch and suddenly you can see sound and stuff. It's, it's, it seems that as the camera is pulled in and in and in on the high-definition character designs, as, they, as it has in all genres over the last few years, suddenly we've realized, oh, this has got too close, and people started adding back in that spatial awareness. But, but volume, yeah, because the camera is so high and above the action, it means I've got the luxury of being able to show 
you know, everything. Basically, the, the, the objective here is to have zero ambiguity um, and, and see how that goes. Um, there are certain things I don't telegraph, so I don't do, you don't see where an enemy's going. You know, it's not like a, a Hitman, uh, the most recent one style kind of line showing you where they're going to go. Um, right. But they repeat their paths in that kind of classic way, so you can work it out. But the idea is, yeah, because it, stealth is one of the few genres where we actually celebrate games that obfuscate understanding. You know, if you look at most games, good design generally is, is about knowing where things are and what's going to happen. If I do this, what will happen in the world? Uh, that's easy to do when you're making a game about guns, because <laughs> it's, you know, <laughs> But with stealth, it feels like we stepped away from that kind of classic design sensibility of, of, you know, I want someone to load up a level in volume, see the world, see what the enemies are doing, come up with an idea, and then do that. And if they mess that up, I want it to be entirely the player's fault and not the game for misleading them or confusing them. That's the objective. We'll see how successful I am at it. In, in, in the case of this one, there's no... Uh, you, you don't actually... The main character doesn't really engage in combat at all, right? No, you can't You can't kill in the game. You can't even do stealth kills. Because that was another problem I have. <laughs> another problem I have with stealth Another thing that I think, at least when I play stealth games, um, mm-hmm. so when I, when I sat down to do this, the thing I realized about how I play stealth games, I, just made, I, got, I got a stack of every stealth game I owned and just played them for a couple of days. And the problem I realized was the way I play them is I room clear. I walk into a room, I work out how to take out those five guys as efficiently as possible. Um, and that's okay, but that's it means that I play the levels the same way every time because I've found the winning strategy. There is no point in a stealth game sneaking past a guard because inevitably the designer has set up a scenario where you can get behind them and do a stealth kill on them if you just get to the right point. Um, and players do that, even if they're not aware of it, they find the optimal path through a level. So by removing that, by making it that when you finish a level in the game, there will be the same number of enemies as there were when you started, the hope is, again, we'll see, this is all hyperbole until it happens, the hope is that that means you don't worry about it, you don't work out the way to kill people, you, you engage with more of the stealth mechanics in the game, and you use more of the interesting stuff. Um, and there's other things we do, so you don't have an inventory between levels. You know, every object you pick up in the game is specific to the map you're on. So there's none of this kind of hoarding of grenades that you get in games, where you kind of go, oh, I'll save that that awesome thing for the moment I need it. Well, so um, I do so that. I do that in every single game, and then never yeah. use any of that stuff. Yep. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yep. um, and and it's 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 something that I hate. And again, with stealth, because you know especially with volume because it's a lot of gadgets and a lot of weird gizmos you use to fiddle around with the environment. I didn't want the player to be limited. I didn't want the player to be limited by their own desire to save things. So, yeah, you don't get to carry stuff between missions. If you have something in that level, that's for that level, use it. Um, And also nothing has a finite ammo. Uh, So you can keep reusing the awesome thing within that world. Um, But obviously they have recharge time, so so there's a pacing thing to that. Again, it's, it's hopefully the, the the objective was to take what I loved and then try and work out how to make it more varied. But again, I, I always feel really weird having these kind of conversations because this game could be shit. But <laughs> hey, at least you're honest. Every possibility that this game will be absolutely rubbish, but I hope it won't be. You got to work on your salesmanship. I'm just I'm throwing that out there. You got to you got to no, really you got to you got to nail this down. You got to <laughs> let everyone know this is going to be the best damn stealth game that's ever been because, you know, I I I think the humility is rad. You got to you got to you got to get that self face on. It's the Englishness, I think. It's always <laughs> holding me back. 
So how much uh, this game's a huge departure, at least you know, sort of mechanically speaking, from Thomas was alone. And I know that you're you're developing a narrative for volume, but this one seems uh, much more mechanics based, like a lot a lot of uh, core stuff like that than Thomas was alone. So how much of this design was informed by a desire to do something kind of completely different, you know, to get out of your comfort zone, make something, you know, altogether different than Thomas was alone, or was, you know, or, is, or are these two games linked a little more closely than, than seems on the surface? Um, so there's a few answers to that. Definitely when Thomas did well, um, everyone told me I had to make a sequel. <laughs> and there's a little bit of petulance involved in going, you know what, like that would be easy money, but screw it. Like, I finally, for the first time, I worked in traditional dev for like six years before Thomas. Um, and there's definitely something of, oh my god, I can make whatever I want. I'm not going to make a franchise sequel. Finally, I don't have to do that, you know. Um, so <laughs> but then, a, then, you look at, then you look at that pile of money, and you go, oh, I see how people... It's tempting, the pile of money is tempting. But sometimes, yeah, sometimes things matter more than that, I guess. I, I just kind of, I was like, no, I, I want to do something else. And this, this was a game that, you know, I've been designing in my head since I, you know, first was handed a copy of Metal Gear Solid and told to climb up and down the ladder three times so you could see Meryl in her underwear. Like, that was, like, a <laughs> um, Like, that. this is a game I've been wanting to do for years. Um, in terms of, like, the, the story mechanic thing, what's really interesting there, and this is, again, maybe slightly too self-effacing, um, but Thomas Was Alone was was meant to be a really good mechanic-led game. <laughs> um, the way I saw it when I was making it was I thought I was making um, a really good mechanics platformer with a kind of serviceable story, and it turned out I was doing the absolute opposite. <laughs> um, according to like reviews and stuff, I don't know. It, it was it was never the intention. That game, I I think I get away with murder with Thomas was alone because I think people assume I was trying to make a kind of a a non game experience. You know, one of these kind of is it a game? Isn't it a game? No, I was really trying to make Mario, um, <laughs> but like unsuccessfully. Fortunately, like my in my opinion, kind of subpar soap opera script was considered good. Um, so it kind of did all right. So to be honest, this is a similar thing. This is, again, me trying to make a mechanically interesting game um, and then also trying to tell a story that I hope is competent and good alongside that and in it. And honestly, like I, I feel like critics will decide which of them I was going for in the fullness of time because it happened with Thomas. Like, maybe this is the mechanical one. I don't know as far as I'm concerned. Both of them... That, you know, I consider both those things equal. Um, I think Thomas was alone was less successful mechanically than it was story-wise. Who knows with this one? Um, as long as one of them's half decent, I'll be okay. I think. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess whichever way it, it works out, yeah, it'll still be it, celebrated one way or the other. <laughs> like I know, I, I I get the impression, you know, with with kind of what things are known for, especially in indie games, like you you get. People get pigeonholed and they get like, you know, this is the thing that people liked about the game, so therefore that's the thing that indie game developer cares about. And often you meet these people and you realize, oh no, they were totally trying to do something completely different. And I find that interesting. So Definitely the comes. Did you have any temptation then to sort of lean in to what people responded to? Because it sounds like you're instead of necessarily doing that, you're just gonna, you know, keep doing what was successful before, <laughs> regardless of how people sort of received it in a different way. Um, but, you know, I think it might, you know, I could see how it might be tempting to say, well, people seem to really like the story. I'm going to lean really sure. heavy into that. Well, I think there's, well, 
I think there's pig-headedness, like, in the kind of the textbook indie thing of I'm just, like, I'm really lucky that Thomas did as well as it did that I can kind of do what I want. Um, so there's that, so I can just do the things that interest me. Um, but definitely the fact that people like the story of Thomas definitely affected the way volume's been written in that I actually kind of sat down and, like, there's expectation now. Like, you know, cross out the damsel in distress opening and just kind of try and come up with something good. Um, there's definitely there's definitely a sense that people expect it to be a good story, and that means that I've had to work harder at it. So I hope it's good. Either that or it's going to be just way too self-aware. Again, we'll see. <laughs> but I, I, I think it's I think it's good. I think it's good. I'm sure your uh, collaborators will be glad to hear you say that. Um, I, I, <laughs> who are who are you working with on this game? I saw like a, a half dozen different names on the, on the website. Uh, so you still obviously got a pretty small crew. Uh, who who do you have working on you on this with you? Um, so I'm the only full time person. Um, so I'm doing the code and the design and the um, the writing. Um, and then I've got uh, David Houston, who's the compute the composer from Thomas, uh, who's coming back to do the music for this. Um, I've got Chris Randall, who's a sound engineer, um, who's doing all the sound work and stuff, and it's awesome. Um, who else is working on I've got an art team, so I've got Daz Watford, who's an old friend from back when I was working in industry. Uh, he quit his day job and came and worked on volume, which is awesome. Um, so he's doing like the, the look of the thing and the design of all the art. Bunch of 3D modelers, um, Wayne, Chris, Nick, a bunch of different people. Um, and then a voice cast. Uh, so I've announced there's kind of three main actors in it, um, and the ones I've announced are Danny Wallace, who's the who's the guy who did Thomas Was Alone's voiceover, who's the kind of the Mr. Paperclip of military hardware is the kind of thing. <laughs> in the um, and then Charlie McDonnell, who's up, who's the star, who's kind of the the, the Robert Loxley character, and then there's a villain who I've not yet talked about who that is, but that's going to be cool too. So there's lots of people. It's scary when I say it like that. <laughs> when you actually have to start like <laughs> actually <laughs> listing out all the people involved that aren't you yeah. and that you're responsible for and you have to and pay I, I and I've make sure it's worth their time. I know I've missed people. I've missed out. I missed out Aaron, the animator. Um, I, I, like, I missed out loads of people when I said that. It's terrifying. Um, <laughs> But it's good. It's it's coming together, um, and and everyone's just doing amazing work. Um, I think with with Thomas, we didn't know what we were making. Like um, you know, me and David, the composer, just kind of found each other through a mutual friend because we were both making stuff, and and he he did amazing work, and and we kind of. We, we collaborated, but we just assumed it was going to be a small little game that, like, 20 people would play. Um, and, and Danny kind of did, it, did the voiceover on a whim because I emailed him, uh, and he used to be a game critic, so he was like, oh, I'll be in the game, yeah, why not? Um, and it's kind of, then it blew up. So there's now a lot of expectation and awareness that we all know, like, even if this is bad, people are probably going to play it, and if it's really bad, then people will hate us. Um, but that's cool. So you're trying not to make that happen. Exactly, yeah. I'm realizing through the course of this conversation that I'm not presenting myself in the most, <laughs> most positive light. But, yeah, no, hopefully. Um, I think it's good. I think it's good. Well, when did you realize or when, uh, did you, when did it become clear that, you know, you mentioned that the success of Thomas Was Alone allows you to kind of take your time, make the game you want to make. Um, you know, obviously you can't take forever, but at least you can kind of breathe easy and not 
uh, feel like you got to ship, ship, ship. Um, how quickly did that happen with Thomas Was Alone? Was that something out of the gate? Was that something that you built towards uh, using you know sales and, and other tactics? Uh, and then you know obviously the game was ported uh, to a lot of places. So at what point did you sort of cross that threshold and realize like I'm going to do okay? I can take my time and make the game I want to make for the next one. Um, it was a weird one with Thomas because it's it's in there was no plan basically like the plan was finish the game. Um, I think lots of indies do this. I, I kind of was like I need to get this game finished and then you know maybe it'll get a review on a big website and then I'll be notch. Like that was the entire <laughs> thought process. Um, I did like I did a few things. I did like I talked at events and conferences and took the game to stuff. But mainly, to be fair, I was taking the game to events just to watch people play and kind of do play testing. Essentially, it's it was nothing to do with promotion. It was just seeing if the jump felt good. Um, but then it came out. Came out in July of 2012, um, and I think I made about five hundred dollars. So I bought an iPad. Um, <laughs> as, as one does. Just use up all as the money. Does. Look, if this is all I'm going to get, it? I might as well get an iPad. <laughs> this is quite well. this, this was the fight. But what was what was what was kind of brilliant in retrospect, but horrible at the time, was it made five hundred dollars and then stopped. Uh, <laughs> oh, and, and and I was like, and I I had you know I worked I I was a, at this point I was a, a design lead uh, a company in London, so I was I had a job, I was comfortable, the hobby game, you know, I wasn't notch. But it was okay. Like I was, I went back to my day job and carried on. Um, and then it was a really slow burn. Just you know, a couple of websites started reviewing it. It didn't get the best reviews. It wasn't like an, it wasn't a ten out of ten game. It was, I think, the Metacritic's like seventy eight or something. It wasn't. It didn't set the world on fire, you know. Um, but it slowly people started talking about it. It started coming up in lists and things. Um, and it just kind of. Carried on. Then it got on Steam, which was the big one. That was November, um, and at that point, it was like, okay, maybe I'm going to be able to buy another iPad. <laughs> um, and the, the kind of that was the thought process. And then, and then it started is making. How, is that how you measure your success? Just yeah, like an Excel spreadsheet with iPad purchases. Yeah, no, basically, yeah, that's my entire measure. But it was, it, it and it wasn't great. It wasn't great. But it, it was selling, um, and it did, it did okay. But it was still like I'd made. I think by the end of November, I'd made like two or three months' salary, which wasn't, you know, enough to ever consider that being a new job. Um, and then the Christmas sale hit, and everyone knows how well the Christmas sales go on Steam. And I remember, and it's really sad, I stayed home on New Year's Eve that year because um, it was about to hit a year's salary on Christmas Eve, on New Year's Eve, sorry. And no one ever believes me, but it is absolutely true. At midnight it ticked over on the stats page behind the scenes and I had a year's salary in the bank. Um, and that was the point where it's like, okay, I, I'm going to actually quit my day job. Um, had a fun, like, you know, day, New Year's Day, um, just going, oh my God, this is, this is going to happen. Then Total Biscuit did a video. Um, and then by the end of that week, I had two years, three years salary in the bank. Wow. Um, and, then it just, and that was the point where it just all went crazy. Um, and... Um, yeah, and we'd been kind of quietly getting on with a PlayStation port, and that came out and did crazy well. And uh, yeah, it just kind of kept going and going and going. And now I have to read people telling me I was, you know, an overnight success. And I'm remembering back to that iPad. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I remember when 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 we did a quick look of it. You know, I, you know, I really enjoyed the game. You know, and then you know, we did a video of it, but that was. 
that was just kind of it, you know. And then I remember yeah. kind of looking at the game six months later and realizing like it had really taken off in a way that it just, you know, it didn't. And and I think it's yeah, it's easy to look back, you know, <laughs> a year and a half in retrospect and be like, oh yeah, big success, like right out of the gate, you know, it was a and super people only ever see retrospect. But and that's the thing. I say this to a lot of indies when you meet people at events and they um, you know, they have a cool game. Uh, and they say, yeah, I brought it out, and I've been selling it direct, and I've, you know, not sold many copies, and I'm going to have to start the next one, and like, and you just, you kind of think that I think this mythology of overnight success has kind of, I, I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's a cool story to tell people, like, like the the story I just told, the the good bit of that story from like a storytelling point of view was New Year's Eve. Right. That's the bit of the story that people care about. Um, but then the six months preceding that, that's a less interesting story, and therefore that story gets told less and less. And it means that a lot of indies, I think, have this assumption that, you know, if you make a good game, you're just going to hit overnight. And it does happen, but you have to make better games than Thomas was alone. Well, and on top of that, it also sort of discounts, I imagine, the six months of, you know, horrible anxiety and tension you went through, like, trying to figure out, is this actually going to be the direction my life is taking or not? Yeah. Oh, yeah, and that's, you know... The, that's a stressful process, but but then obviously if it goes well, and I was lucky and it did, um, you kind of you forget. There's that thing, isn't there, that you forget childbirth. Apparently, there's something in the human mind that the pain of childbirth is forgotten um, because of the love of the baby. And I think and that's, just long and enough to, re, to forget why you did it in the first place, and then exactly hey, let's have another kid. It's apparently Whoops. the trick that biology plays on you, on, on women uh, to kind of trick them into having more children. Um, and far be it from me to compare releasing an indie game. I'm realizing that. <laughs> but, but basically, I think there is an element of you forget the bad time because the good time was so good. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's a weird one. It's a weird one. And it's a weird realization now that because people give a crap... Um, I'm never going to have to go through that process again. Like the chances are, you know, volume will be reviewed on all the big game websites the day it comes out. Just kind of by default, that's almost going to happen. If it's rubbish, the third game might not get quite good coverage. But but this it's it's a weird it's a weird realization that you fight that fight and you learn how to be really good at getting you know anyone to talk about your stuff at the exact moment where people stop where it stops being a challenge where it stops being this massive uphill struggle, and that's a weird feeling. Um, so that's why I think a lot of indies then go on and go, right, well, how can we help other indies? You know, How can we boost the visibility of other people? And I think it becomes that cycle of success followed by feeling really bad about that success and then going and trying to help other people achieve the same thing. I have to ask, I wonder if you saw the big discussion slash argument uh, about from Jason Rohr, where he sort of made his big pitch about the long tail of game sales and the idea that sort of the sales culture uh, largely uh, created by Steam and the expectation that uh, players don't need to buy a game when it's full price because they can just wait you know, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, uh, and there will be a huge sale as a result uh, actually really hurts uh, the long tail sales of a game because it creates a culture in which people uh, decide to wait uh, as opposed to uh, paying for games at the prices that developers think they're worth. Uh, I'm curious, given that you know you had a sort of long tail before you, you know the tail of the game even began, uh, how, how you feel about that argument and and what he was talking about? 
Oh, I think it's a really hard one to generalize. Like, it's an almost impossible theory to ever test. Um, I think I, I think there's... I don't know, I can only speak for me, but I think for me, when I see a game, I immediately think of the price I want to pay for that game. Mm-hmm. And that's the price I'm going to pay for that game. Um, and there are games I have to buy the day they come out, and I'll rush the shop or, or jump on Steam and grab it, and I have to play those, and I'll pay whatever. Um, and then there are games that it's like, yeah, for two quid, I'll pick that up later and maybe not even bother playing it, but it'll be in my library. And I think that, I think that what the sales do is it, is it's, it, it, it makes it easier to get your game into the hands of people at the price they want to pay. I don't, I don't agree with, I don't think there are many people who would see a game that they would normally pay for normal price, but because they're aware that of sales, that they would then wait. I don't think, I mean, there's probably like, I imagine the kind of, probably the giant bomb audience, uh, probably the kind of super aware video game fans probably play the system a bit and go, no, I'm going to hold off because, you know, the Steam sale's coming up and they'll probably be doing a discount or whatever. But the average player, I think, just gets it at the point where it suits them. I don't, I don't see it. And I think it does, more, it does much more good than it does harm. Because if you look back at, um, like, really early indie stuff, um, you see that before all of this sales culture existed, there were no long tails, you know. And you can see this with um, box games, AAA games. The importance that's placed on the first week in terms of how much those games make, because they don't have a structure to sell you Call of Duty for 20 quid in six months' time, mm-hmm. um, is ridiculous. There is no long tail. I mean, Call of Duty is a bad example because there's absolutely a long tail. But most AAA games don't have that kind of shelf life. They're there for that week, and then no one cares. Um, yeah, maybe a month if you're lucky. Exactly, right? Um, yeah, you you could probably make the, the argument that, uh, you know, used games wouldn't have become such a problem for the industry if the business model had, you know, had a long tail incorporated mm. in it from the beginning. You know, the used games essentially becomes the long tail for video games because they become more affordable over time to uh, a larger audience. It's just that, you know, the, the game publishers didn't bake that into how they sell the games and someone else came up with it for them. I think we also have the luxury as indies, and this is something I've talked to quite a bit with, with people who've, done, who've been really successful with indie games. Um, there's no cap. There's no, there's no point where everyone in the world who could buy Thomas Was Alone will have bought Thomas Was Alone. Um, there's the kind of numbers that I'm dealing with. That, I mean, Thomas, I think... It's just it's getting a boxed release now, and that's probably going to push it to a million sales, which is nice. Um, Crazy! It, Congratulations. Thank you. Um, it was not there yet. We'll see how that does. Yeah. The, um, but but so but that's tiny. That's an utterly tiny number in terms of how many people play video games right. and might play a platformer with rectangles. Like that's I've I've not peaked. There's no point where that happens. You you only have to look at Minecraft. You know, still selling ridiculous numbers every day. Um, I think fourteen million. I think. Yeah, it's not like you run out of players. It's not. You know, if if everyone who plays indie games, this is why Humble Bundle works. If everyone who played indie games wanted to give me twenty p for Thomas Was Alone, that would be much much better than selling you know a, a lot of copies in the first month. Because I'm never gonna. There's never gonna be a point where there's no one who wants Thomas Was Alone anymore. Um, what is the case is I suspect everyone who wants to spend uh, $10 on Thomas Was Alone probably already owns Thomas Was Alone. And that's where the sales come in, is that allows it. This is, you know, 
we're talking now and I guess people are watching and they're going to, there'll probably be someone in your audience who watches this and goes, this English guy seems okay. Um, <laughs> and, and I like rectangles. And they're not oh, going to rush... They're not going to rush onto Steam right now and spend $10, but if they see my game in a Steam sale for $2, they, they might pick it up, you know. I don't think anyone, I don't think we ever run out of players, um, and therefore, why not give the game to the person at the price they want to pay? I, I wonder how much you can uh, publicly even say about this, but one of the questions uh, that I think a lot of players have is they look at, uh, they're very excited about, sort of PlayStation Plus and the instant game collection uh, that you know Sony offers on a monthly basis. And at one point, Thomas Was Alone was part of that. Um, mm. And I, I wonder if you can or how much you could say about, you know, how developer-friendly that is. Like, was that something you were, you know, uh, you know I know that it was very popular on there. I know a lot of people that, that I know, they played for the first time as a part of um, that service. Uh, but in terms of sort of, you know, monetarily how that ends up working out, uh, for, for a developer like yourself. Okay, um, so yeah, I do have to be careful because there are contract things and barriers. Um, first of all, it did really well. Um, like, stupidly well, in terms of the number of people who, who downloaded it um, and, and, and played it as well, actually, um, were very high. So, to the extent that it became... I think that was the point where it became an indie game of this year. It's interesting how many best of 2013 lists this game from 2012 was on. <laughs> um, and I think it's funny how that, that works out sometimes. Indeed, right. And, and, that, and that comes, I think that really does come from the PlayStation Plus because it just put the game into so many people's hands that it became culturally relevant in a way that no weird little game on PC would, would do in terms of just how many people played it that week. It just hit a critical mass. So there's that. Um, and that obviously has a massive kind of knock-on effect to everything else. So that was also my best week on PC because hmm. people were because people with Vitas or PS3s were telling their mates about this weird little rectangle game, and the you know to people who didn't have the account or didn't have the console or whatever, and they were going on Steam and buying it. And I I did very well from that as well. Um, yeah, I can't talk about the contracts behind those that's that, those schemes, but basically it's a it's a thing that's negotiated. Sony says they want it. You you tell them what they want. You want in return, and it happens. If so, it's it definitely treats people fairly insofar as it's not forced on anyone, and it's and it's a negotiation point that you know you get what you want in return for it. Um, so I thought it was fantastic. It meant it put Thomas um, as a big part of what people see on the Sony platforms, um, and it made Thomas a big part of the story of indie coming to Sony. Um, which is brilliant because it means the game continuing to sell well on those platforms and well on PC, um, and it means that when I bring out volume, I have you know hundreds of thousands of people who know who the hell I am, and that's you can't really put a price on that because that's that's useful going forward, kind of on those platforms, and also it all feeds back onto PC. So the short short version, yes, I think it's really it's it's a really good move. But it's something, obviously, that you have to do for the right reasons, and it it worked very well for me. Cool. All right. Well, if folks want to, uh, <clears throat> the stream is uh, a little uh, behind when uh, what people are watching it. But if uh, if folks have any questions, they want to throw at us, throw at Mike. Uh, feel free to do that uh, in the chat as we begin to uh, wind down the show. 
Um, but I, I, is is volume going to be? I I don't know off the top of my head. Is is that PC only uh, for start, and then you're going to work on stuff later, or are you kind of? Um, it's actually to... it's actually console first. Oh, okay. Really? Why do yeah, I, why why flip it? This just because it's me and I like to mess around. With them, <laughs> what happens. Oh, cool. That's fair. clearly like a well thought out thought out process. Yeah, no. Oh no, it's this is how I make every major business decision. No, so it's launching PS4 and Vita. Um, and then a month later, coming to PC, Mac, and SteamOS, um, and then other platforms, unannounced, as yet um, determined, as yet determined, to be determined. Yeah. So it's um, yeah, it's 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 mainly well, two reasons. One is you know Sony have been awesome with Thomas was alone, so they get a bit of love from me. Um, but actually, mainly because I don't want to release a game on five platforms simultaneously from my living room. Um, kind of two platforms, then three platforms, just feels like a better way of spreading it out. And I just, yeah, I just think it would be. It's it feels like a game that makes sense to come out first on a console, just because that genre is. I'd say stealth is probably more historically a console genre than a PC genre, but. Um, yeah, so far everyone's kind of understood, and I've not had quite the degrees of nerd rage I was worried about with it, um, but we'll see how that goes. Maybe uh, contracts would preclude this as well, but I'm curious uh, how your experience thus far has been developing for the PS4 and compared to you know putting Thomas on the PS3 and, and that stuff. Well, what's interesting this time around is with, um, with Thomas, we actually had to rebuild the whole game. Um, in fact, like a game that I'd made kind of in my evenings and weekends, the 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 PS3 and Vita version was actually made by like a, a team of like four or five devs in a in a proper studio <laughs> making it um, because that game had to be rebuilt because it was made in Unity which w- wasn't supported by those platforms. Right. Um, we actually had to rebuild the entire game from scratch, um, and the guys who did it did a really good job. And and the fact that no one realizes it's a completely different game is is testament to how good a port it is. But the um but with this one it's being done in Unity kind of across the board because PS4 and Vita are going to support those platforms. I don't know if I meant to, I think that's out there. Fingers crossed. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and yeah, so that means, so really what that means is it's, it makes it much more like developing a PC game because I'm just making, I'm making volume and at the end of the process I'll make each version kind of play to the strengths of its platform. But, cool. but so far so good. Uh, one of the questions that's kind of come up <clears throat> throughout the course of this, and some folks are asking now, is uh, you know you specifically mentioned you know when Total Biscuit, you know who obviously is one of the most popular uh, uh, guys on YouTube, um, and obviously drives a lot of traffic and sales uh, to the developers of the games he highlights and says nice things about, uh, uh, assumingly. <laughs> um, I know what quite people who've had games that he said nasty stuff about, and they've also done well. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I guess some attention is just visibility. Uh, I guess exactly. I'm, I'm curious, and please be honest. Even though you're, you know, talking to two guys who are in more uh, the traditional games media, but like, I'm curious, what has been your experience in in those two worlds? Like, you know, obviously you have those worlds are getting closer. You know, I think the the gap between uh, the work that folks like Total Biscuit and and uh, and Northern Line and other folks on YouTube uh, and what we do are is getting closer every single day. But there's a there, there is a difference there right now, and they are kind of different worlds and different audiences. And and I'm curious what your experience has been, you know, working between the two, because obviously a lot of 
you know, what's taught to what developers should do to get attention is through us, uh, you know, the, tra the traditional games media. Mm -hmm. But it seems like uh, actually what's happening on YouTube is, at least in terms of driving attention and sales, uh, might be a little bit more where it's at. Um, so, yeah, print media is dead. No, I'm just... No, <laughs> well, no, you're not wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you guys kind of occupy a middle ground anyway, which is interesting. Um, I, th I think, at least, like, I know Giant Bomb for video content more than the, the written stuff. Um, mm -hmm. so, so, I, so, so what's interesting to me is that the people doing it are very similar. Um, so you've got, and, and I mean that kind of across the board, so, like, the, the guys with, like, 20... YouTube subscribers making videos are very similar in kind of their attitudes and their perspective, I think, to a lot of the guys and girls running like smaller blogs and smaller websites. And then the guys and girls doing the big YouTube channels um, are also kind of similar to the, the big known games journalists in terms of like their personality and their interests and kind of talking to them. They just strike me as, I think it's a, I think it's a job that pulls in similar kinds of people with similar degrees of interest. What's interesting about them is the audience is I've compared it before to um, the difference between, and this won't work because you're Americans, but okay, so over here we have like a, a popular um, film show. I guess it's kind of like our version of um, Siskel and Ebert. Okay. Kind of, we have like, you know, like on, on TV every week, um, these are, it's called Film 2014. It's, it's, these are the films that are cool, the blockbusters, interview with Bruce Willis, that kind of stuff. Um, and that is driving more people to go and see a movie on a Friday night than any of the movie press or movie specialist websites or movie whatever, because just loads of people are watching it. Um, however, the reason a film is on Film 2014 is probably because there's been a year of chatter about that movie on the websites, on the specialist press, on that stuff. And I think it's the same with games. I think in terms of right, right now... Um, if I want to sell uh, a couple of hundred copies of Thomas Was Alone today, I would be better off getting a mid-level YouTuber to make a video about the game than I would be getting the front page of any video games website. Mm. That's, that's the reality, unfortunately, now, is, is just that's what drives physical, like literal sales of the game. Not physical sales, we're in the future. <laughs> um, but but like, that's what drives the sales. However, um, in order for those YouTubers to hear about a game, I think there is still a massive importance to the specialist stuff because the specialist stuff caters to the people who make the YouTube stuff and also caters to the audience who care. People, the, the people watching YouTube videos, they're watching them because of the personalities. They're watching them because they think PewDiePie is funny or they think Total Biscuits fun or they think uh, NerdCubed is the best comic genius to come out of Britain for some time, which is my theory. Um, these people, they're, they're watching for those people. The games are a backdrop or a product placement at best. Closer to a product placement given kind of recent news stories about them. But it's, it's sure. that, that's there and that's part of it, but that's not why the fans are there. Whereas I imagine people go to games websites more because of the games than because of the journalists. Um, so it's interesting. It's I think basically it's uh, there's a this this hardcore audience of gamers who are massively important and define what is interesting culturally and what what is good. Um, those are people that you get to via traditional games press, um, and then there's millions of kids who like watching a funny person on YouTube 
who may well pick up your game, and maybe that's going to be the first time they play a stealth game ever, but they but it's they found out about it through there. So I think both are both are valid. Both serve very different audiences, though. So you're saying I should quit my job? That it's I'm all, saying you should quit your job. Yeah. It's okay. done now. All right, all right, I got <laughs> it. That's <laughs> Alex. Uh, you got anything else you wanted to chime in with before we start wrapping this up? No, I think uh, that gives. I'm. I'm I, I, the one thing you didn't talk too much about uh, as far as volume goes I, I, that I saw very much shown in the videos was the uh, the user generated element. It seemed like there's a fair amount of like level building and stuff in there. Did you want to talk about that at all before we uh, jump out of here? Um, yeah, I mean it's not Minecraft. It's not. Right. It's not like a big. It's not Little Big Planet. It's not a massive um, kind of freeform thing. But it's the most requested feature on Thomas Was Alone was people wanting to make their own levels. And because of the haphazard way that Thomas Was Alone was coded, it was not something I could ever kind of put back into the game. So it's something I wanted to do here. Um, and it's something that has factored into the way the game tells its story, is that you could, in theory, grab my game, you know, buy my game when it comes out, download a bunch of user-generated content, and never play a level that I made, but still get the story, still get delivered, the, the narration and the character stuff. Um, it kind of it, it wraps the story around whatever levels you're playing, in theory. <laughs> um, so it's it's kind of trying to bring user-generated content stuff into more single-player. Because I love user-generated content, but as a player, I tend to focus mainly on single-player stuff, which means I don't get to see much of it. I'm not, I'm not seeing all the awesome stuff that's done, done in Team Fortress because I'm not playing multiplayer games kind of for, for a long time. Um, whereas the idea of a kind of a as I'm making a self game where every time you load it up once a week or whatever, there's a bunch of new levels for you to try out and, you know, players telling their own stories in those levels, doing their own challenges. That's interesting. And it's something that increasingly I'm seeing as something that's I think is going to have an effect on, on the success of the game financially, <laughs> interestingly, because you're seeing a lot of games now. It's it goes back into this long tail thing is if, if a YouTuber can make a video about the new levels in your game every week, then that's going to do better for the long term of the game. So really at the moment for the, for the version that will launch, it's a very kind of light, straightforward tool set. It's basically what I use to make the levels for the game. Um, and I'll keep an eye on it. And if it's something that people get into, if it feels like there's a community forming, I'll kind of start to serve that audience a bit better. Um, or, you know, a lot of times user-generated content isn't something that catches on and it might be that, you know, it's something that, that doesn't appeal to the audience. I don't, it's not something that's been done many times for stealth players, so I'm not sure. It strikes me as something I always wanted to when I was playing, like, you know, a game that this game gets compared, compared to a lot of Metal Gear Solid VR missions. I know when I was playing VR missions as a kid, I wanted to make my own environments. But I'm a game designer, so I don't, I don't know if that's, you know, if that was specific to me, but it definitely it's it's, it's something I'm I'm kind of experimenting. I'm seeing whether people go for it. Cool, it sounds really awesome. Yeah, perfect. All right, well, Mike, it's been uh, a pleasure having you on. Uh, thanks for coming by, and we'll uh, we'll have to have you on again as you uh, continue forward into Volumes development. Which uh, you know, can you tell us at all about the, the the release date? Are you looking for this year? I've said 2014. <laughs> you said okay. it out loud. And that is very that well. That's that's very much the aim. Cool. And we all know once you say it out loud, you can't ever change it. Yeah, no, that's how the internet works. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, so you know, for for folks that want to continue following you, why don't you uh, you know pimp your stuff? Let let folks know where they can follow you on Twitter, websites, all that stuff. 
Okay, I'm probably honestly Twitter's probably the best way to find me, which is a sad, sad state of affairs. Um, <laughs> I'm on Twitter. It's at uh, Mike uh, Bithel, which is B-I-T-H-E-L-L, um, and which is where I talk nonsense and bollocks all day. Um, and then, uh, yeah, you can buy Thomas Was Alone if you want to help out with my rent. Uh, that's on Steam or, or PlayStations of various kinds. Um, but yeah, that's it really. And and yeah, fingers crossed. Hopefully, uh, volume soon enough. All right. Well, Alex, what are you what are you up to this week? Uh, working on a review, which I can't, uh, you know, talk about yet, obviously, because of embargoes, what have you, but I'll have one of those, and then I will, uh, have an encyclopedia bomb basket this week for, uh, randomly, Super Mario Brothers 2. Uh, okay. I was, after playing 3D World a bunch, I wanted to get back and, and play some more of that game, because, you know, the whole four-character thing, and I've suddenly remembered why that is actually one of my favorite Super Mario games, so I'm gonna do something for it. Awesome. Uh, I'm wrapping up, uh... Hopefully wrapping up uh, a big story about EVE Online today to, to run tomorrow. Um, cool. And then I think at some point, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to wait till the end of the day to beat that stupid boss in Banner Saga. So <laughs> I might just, to, just jump in there, man. Just jump in there. I think I need to. I think I need to just to, to cleanse my soul and, and move on. But, uh, Mike, thanks again. Uh, we'll have you on again sometime soon. And uh, good luck with the rest of the development of Volume. Thank you so much. It's been awesome. All right, Alex, I will talk to you on Friday. Ooh.